Captain Janeway? I prefer Vice Admiral Janeway. Is there something I can help you with? Can I help you? I, uh... Ooh, didn't expect... I was on my way to... What's it called? I, uh... Try stringing a few words together and we'll start from there. Transfer complete. Hello and welcome to Subspace Transmissions, the podcast where two Trek fans step into the arena and tackle the best, worst, weirdest, wildest, and everything in between that Star Trek has to offer. I'm Cam Smith, and joining me on the Dauntless Bridge. This is Tyler Orton twisting his ponytail like he's one outrageous Okana. <laughs> and we're here this week to talk about the latest two episodes of Star Trek Prodigy, Crossroads and Masquerade, as well as... Um, complete our run for season one of Andor, but we'll get to the Andor stuff later. Let's just jump into the first episode of Prodigy we're going to cover, Crossroads. Um, Tyler, I thought this was actually a pretty interesting episode in that uh, when they had the kind of the setup, I was like, this feels maybe like a smaller, uh, you know, maybe low-key episode of the series as compared to like the last couple I've watched with kind of the, you know, the bigger Borg stuff and then the uh, Starfleet cosplay planet, but boy... Having Janeway as sort of your antagonist or your obstacle in an episode, I thought worked out really well dramatically. Is that why Living Witness is one of your favorite episodes of Star Trek Voyager? Yes, that's exactly why. Yes, yes. One of the all-time favorites of mine, yes. Yeah. No, it was interesting. Uh, going. This is one where we spend most of our time on the ice planet, in which hologram Janeway's like, it doesn't matter if you're gone for three years or 30 <laughs> years. It'll go in a blink of an eye. Uh, three hours later, oh, you're back so soon. <laughs> it's <laughs> like, um, yeah, no, th this kind of um, an exciting turn of events here. Uh, I, like, okay, you tell me, you articulate to me why this one is maybe a little bit more exciting to you than uh, maybe I found it in which, like, there there were moments that gripped me, you know, like, but it all seems to be kind of more in the fan service stuff that I found more gripping than other moments. Um, maybe it's kind of notable developments, like, you know, Murph is getting a new body mm -hmm. that I was kind of more interested in, but you tell me why this one, like, maybe pops to you more than it did for me. And uh, again, I keep asking you to say this, I am going to jump in and say, like, just kind of the appearance of the, you know, kind of classic TNG era Romulan warbirds. Oh, yeah. It's like that stuff, like, makes my heart flutter just a bit. But to me, I, I keep thinking about the stuff that I, I, I want to praise about this particular episode. It's more of the fans or service sort of stuff. And that's kind of why I, I feel a little bit torn about this one. But uh, uh, tell me what it is. What what What's uh, made your heart flutter throughout? I think for me it was the fact that we had... Janeway is the obstacle preventing the characters from getting to where they need to go. And so often in these stories, and we have talked about a million Star Trek episodes and movies and all that sort of thing, with boring villains or antagonists that get in the way of our heroes. And I think what made this work really well for me is Janeway is one of the smartest characters in all of Star Trek. 
And to have her in a role preventing our characters from achieving what they need to do and having Dao trying to kind of tiptoe around Janeway, I thought it just raised the tension to a much higher degree than it would be if it was, you know, them against random Starfleet, you know, Vice Admiral sure. or whatever. Um, and then, you know, when you factor in elements... <laughs> Don't you dare talk about Ronnie Cox, <laughs> a.k.a. one uh, Jellico like that. One Admiral Jellico like that, Cam. <laughs> we'll get to him in uh, Masquerade. But yeah, to me, and then, you know, when you work in that, I thought, really visually dynamic chase sequence um, going through warp... Um, at the end, like, again, we've seen effect sequences like this, but again, having Janeway um, in the one in pursuit, I thought just made it dramatically way more interesting and intense than I perhaps expected this episode would be. Okay. I, I, I totally get that. I'll tell you what. And this is not the fault of Prodigy in and of itself. We we get the appearance of the, uh, the Zindi, right? Um, yep. Was it the reptile species, I, I believe? And it was, yeah. For me, it's been 20 years since we've gotten to see the Zindi. I mean, that was pretty cool. I mean, um, what I kind of realized and what was kind of being hammered into my head more and more is how ambiguous they've been keeping this era of the Star Trek universe for the last five years since, you know, Discovery premiered. Mm-hmm. And that I think, you know, when we left it off uh, with, you know, say Enterprise, we were told that at one point the Zindi would join the Federation, that they would be allies, even if they're, you know, at war, you know, 150, 200 years ago versus the timeline that we're in right now. And it's just kind of like, it feels like even though we get the appearance of like these legacy aliens... They keep wanting to think, like leave things ambiguous enough so that whoever comes along next and wants something really interesting to do, they have that flexibility. And I, I, I totally get that. But it is frustrating because, Cam, like we're in the 2380s right now. Yep. And we've been watching, you know, uh, a couple other shows we've watched picard we've watched star trek lower decks we've watched star trek prodigy and watch maybe they would have addressed the fact that uh more than a billion people died on cardassia mm. during the final blows of the dominion war cam i have no idea what the status is of cardassia right now yeah are they antagonists to the federation have they kind of have they kind of turned into the uh the west germany uh for you know kind of the uh the western uh powers uh post second world war are 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 they in the federation because their entire you know political system was absolutely crushed because it, it's those kinds of things like i i wish there wasn't all this kind of amb ambiguity in that like if you're gonna bring back kind of these legacy aliens or, or play with on the universe and, and i say this in uh, you know, I'll skip ahead just a little bit, but you know, the next episode. Oh, what was the one after Crossroads? Uh, it has another like one word title. Masquerade. Masquerade. I thought that was an incredibly fun episode in which you were having fun within the universe that's been established in Star Trek. You know, and it, it's so clear to me that Prodigy is having fun within this you know amazing canvas that is the Star Trek universe, but it just feels as if there's. Too many elements of this show that it's kind of plain, plain it, not not safe, but they, they want to leave that kind of ambiguity there. 
to leave things flexible, but it, it, it it's like they're having their cake and eating it too, to a certain degree. And, and it's no fault of this particular episode, but you know, we're, we're, I don't know, like uh, 14 episodes in by this point. And I'm just like, I wish they would kind of uh, commit a little bit more to what might be going on in this era of the 2380s of uh, Star Trek. So I don't know, like, uh, I just feel so nitpicky for all the wrong reasons. And it, it, it it's this is sort of like critique that I hate that <laughs> when <laughs> I'm listening to it from like other podcasts or reading it from you know, other blogs or what have you. But it's just something that's just kind of been like at the back of my head for the last few episodes and it just really came to the forefront with Crossroads here. Everything you said about this episode praising it, I I, I can't disagree with you at all. Like I like seeing Janeway in the flesh once again as the antagonist having her goals going up against the goals of our protagonists here, you know, the, the, uh, protostar crew. This is what like good writing is. This is what I've been begging for, for Star Trek, uh, for a lot of this time. So I don't know for me, you, you can certainly seem to understand that I, I feel very conflicted with what's going on right now. Yeah. Well, you know, you bring up the Zindi stuff and I made a note for sure, obviously, you know, with excitement about seeing reptilian Zindi, and the point you're making about, like, being kind of ambiguous about some of these larger elements, whether it's Cardassians, Zindi, things like that, I often wonder, when it comes to Prodigy or Lower Decks, how much freedom those shows have in particular to explain these things. I often feel like, when it comes to larger elements of Star Trek canon, it's like, nope, nope, that has to be in the prestige live-action shows um, the children's animated show is not allowed to explain things like the Zindi because that's going to impact storytelling on the, you know, the bigger hour-long dramas. I, I don't know. That's always a vibe I've kind of had. And, and this is going back to the previous episode as well in which we had, like, the Borg appear mm -hmm. once again. And I'm just like, oh, they kind of left it ambiguous with the Borg too, especially coming off of Endgame, you know, the, the Star Trek Voyager series finale. In which we were given the impression that the, the Borg had been weakened to, you know, a notable degree. And they just kind of left it ambiguous, you know, they come across a Borg cube and they left it ambiguous as to what it means. So again, it just, to me, it feels as if um, they're introducing these elements of Star Trek lore, but they're not quite willing to pull the trigger, or as you speculated maybe they're not quite allowed they're, they're allowed to kind of like hey here's an appearance yeah of an alien you might recognize isn't that fun and isn't that fan servicey like oh yeah it's cool haven't seen zindi in 20 years i can believe that like with lower decks you know when they maybe said we'd like to really do more with the pack lids that, you know, the Kurtzman people are like, you go nuts, you do whatever you want with the Packlets. But if they came yeah. in and said, we have a radical vision for where Cardassia is, it would be like, whoa, 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 whoa. Yeah. yeah, we may have plans for that. I agree with you. And it's, so, the other thing that I've been thinking about recently, and this is, you know, as all the listeners know, I am very slow. <laughs> very, very slow. Uh, it, the live action series all of them take place in different eras of Star Trek. You know, we've got Strange New Worlds in the pre-Kirk Enterprise era. You know, uh, Picard is in what uh, season three showrunner Terry Metalis calls 
the quote-unquote contemporary era, you know, uh, just kind of following like the, the timeline as it started, you know, 35 years ago with the next generation. And then we have Discovery, you know, almost 1,000 years in the future. And it's kind of like, Cam, even Discovery? What do we know of the Cardassians in the Discovery area? Well, and we even had the, uh, yeah, we had the Federation president who was half Cardassian. Like, and, and her mm. family has a summer home on Earth, <laughs> despite the fact that um, Earthlings, or Terrans, I should say, uh, have become very uh, isolated and reclusive until Michael Burnham <laughs> presented herself on the galactic stage, you know? And I'm just like, but it's like, we don't really know what's going on with the Klingons in this era. And it's just, it's all this ambiguity that's going on in that era, plus the two cartoon series, animated series. You know, we know where things stand in the Strange New Worlds era. They've been more willing to kind of touch upon that in the Picard era. Um, Good thing I know that the Borg... Well, they've got themselves a new queen. That's, that's, you know, I, I, it's just, it's like this, you know, the worst thing in the world is when you have somebody who is trying to please everybody. Right. And they please no one as a right, result. Yeah. yeah. And that's kind of where I, I feel like things are when there's all this ambiguity into what's going on. The, the best thing that, you know, the JJ verse ever did uh, was they, in the within the confines of the prime universe is they destroyed you know romulus and so that's had impacts on where we are in the quote-unquote contemporary you know timeline of uh picard and company you know it's like we know what the dynamics or kim do we really know what the dynamics are within whatever aftermath uh, exists of the romulan Star Empire, like I, I mean, we've speculated maybe they've all kind of turned into petty kingdoms, or maybe there's like a remnant of central government, or maybe not. Like I, it, it's still kind of ambiguous. Even though you know we have you know one Captain Riker threatening to kick the tall Shiar ass of one Commodore. Oh, you know, I don't know. It, it's just it feels as if like when we're watching TNG or Deep Space Nine. We knew where everything stood. We knew what the politics were with everything. And I'm going on this completely wild tangent that's based on seeing two Zindi aliens on the latest or uh, one of the newest episodes of Star Trek Prodigy. Huh. But it's just, it's been something that's just kind of gnawing at me at the back of my mind. And th this episode has kind of really brought it to the forefront. I guess that's what I'm getting at. I do wonder if there's a little bit of the challenge of when you are, <laughs> we live in franchise world now, and so you have all these various Star Trek shows running, you know, kind of the same time, um, and it's like this complete terror about confusing an audience. So say like on, whatever, uh, this episode of Prodigy, they'd made a huge, you know, breaking kind of announcement as to where, I don't know, the Romulans were. Well, suddenly you have to maybe acknowledge that in an episode of Picard and those viewers are going, what? Like, I don't understand what's going on. Well, you had to have seen that episode of Prodigy. So it's like we, we kind of have this gift of way more Star Trek than we've ever had. But at the same time, 
the threat of confusing people is so much higher because you can't expect all the viewers to watch all these shows. And so it's like, which ep- which shows do you pick to make drastic, you know, canon-changing moments? and Or do you just, like, constantly refer to things people recognize and kind of keep it with a status quo that's comfortable? Cowardice. <laughs> Feckless. <laughs> that I mean, look, you know, we'll, we'll get into it later on. Yeah. Uh, Andor. Sure. <laughs> they are making their mark. They are. They have no problem saying this is what's going on in this particular slice of the, you know, Star Wars timeline. Well, I'd say Star Wars has done it very well because, you know, you look at Mandalorian as well and the way that they've brought in characters from the animated shows and put them in live action. And I've never felt confused at all about any of them. Well, also think about the fact that I don't think it crosses the minds of most audience members. I, I, would, I would assume that, what, Mandalorian and uh, and uh, uh, Andor, they probably take place like 20, or no, maybe not even that, like uh, like maybe f- 10 years apart maximum? Um, no, because it would be, oh boy. Um, so one is like just a few years before A New Hope, so... Five years before A New Hope. So, like, Luke is, I think, like, 20 in A New Hope, and then the, um, then Mandalorian takes place after Return of the Jedi, so that's like, yeah, you know, it's probably like about 10 years, I guess, actually, yeah, yeah. I like how, Cam, you were like, Yeah, I know. No. I had to do the mental yeah. gymnastics first and to completely put the podcast on hold as the spinning wheel over my head uh, continued on. <laughs> I, I like listeners. Cam is the big Star Wars fan. Tyler, uh, I, I, he's seen everything, but uh, Cam, you are the big Star Wars fan. Although you couldn't let me have that. You couldn't just I say, couldn't. yeah, you're, you're right, Tyler. You're right, I couldn't, right. no. <laughs> <laughs> no, but that's what I was saying. It yeah. doesn't really matter that these are two things that take place like 10 years apart because what's going on and this is what i feel is kind of different is like they're telling like these episodes and and stories that all they're in kind of these enclosed bubbles and so it doesn't really matter that they take place so far apart whereas like it seems to matter way more kim just the fact that we're at like starfleet uniform number like yeah. 82 yeah. At this point, and it's just like it's like, it, 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 how can you be in charge of this franchise? And I'm trying to give credit to Alex Kurtzman and and just try to be able to keep track of all these different timelines. You know, it, it's a tough endeavor. You know, whereas oh yeah, with the the Star Wars stuff that's going on right now, it, it doesn't even seem as if it matters, and rightfully so. It it, it shouldn't matter because what you're trying to do is just capture like one little slice of an era and tell a whole story within versus like we need to pay tribute to everything that's happened before and everything that will unfold after and make sure we don't you know rupture things too much you know but i'm just kind of like as i said it, it, it's that whole thing where if you're trying to please everyone you ultimately please no one. So, you know, Cam, I guess this is just um, faint praise for Star Trek Discovery, where, like, we don't want to please anyone. We, we're yeah. we're going to do our own thing. And uh, those Star Trek Discovery fans that are out there, they are hardcore. Yeah. So I, I am jealous of the people that connect with Discovery th- that way. 
you know, um, you know, maybe those first two seasons I was getting there, but at this point I just I I, I have no clue what those what, what's who the audience is for Star Trek Discovery. Like who's that show made for? I don't know. Right, yeah. Yeah. Whereas like I would say Prodigy has a pretty firm handle on its audience and Yes. Even an yes. episode like Crossroads, which while I did enjoy the episode, um it didn't feel as substantial as some of the other episodes we've seen in the show, but this show feels very consistent in like engagement level where I just every single episode I'm like these characters are really clicking, all of them have very well defined personalities, and I like the way they find kind of these fun little stories even in just like these 20 minute, you know, kind of chunks. Cam, there hasn't been a stinker yet with Prodigy. And I feel so bad and like I'm No. I, I'm kind of ranting about not this episode in particular, but it's it's really this episode kind of sparked a rant that yeah. it, it's totally unfair against this episode, you know. Uh, but it's it's kind of one of those things as I said, it's kind of been gnawing in the back of my head for a little while. This show's great. Like I Cam, uh, whenever I sit down and watch it, I I never <laughs> sit down and watch it with dread. You know, um, when we're like, you know, uh, deep into Star Trek Picard season two, it wasn't dread. It was more like morbid curiosity. Right. But when I was watching, <laughs> you know, we're, we're halfway through season four of Discovery. I was watching those episodes with dread. Like, sure. that's what it does. And Prodigy at that, I, I don't, I feel as if the makers of the show... It's as if they've established like kind of comfort zone, mm-hmm. and that you can trust them. Whereas the folks behind Picard and Discovery, I can't. I don't have any trust. I have no no faith in what they're doing, you know. And so that that's kind of I think like I I, I look forward to watching Prodigy every week because I know that I'm going to be delighted in some way, and that the shows just even the way the music swells the. You know, maybe, can we jump over to Masquerade? Well, you know what? We've got to touch on the introduction or the reintroduction of Alcona yes, in yes. this episode because that was a major moment when we talk about, you know, fan service. It's been a long time since Billy Campbell has appeared on <laughs> Star Trek. And I don't think we ever thought Billy Campbell would ever appear on Star Trek again after that. I was hoping <laughs> he'd be in uh, Picard Season 3. I was counting on it. <laughs> I thought he was going to be the main <laughs> villain, but instead as Amanda Plummer. So what can you do? And the fact that we had this character pop up, you know, silently as like a DJ on Lower Decks <laughs> felt like a fun little joke. But now we actually had him showing up and given an introduction that was very Han Solo in A New Hope. Uh, <laughs> so I, I thought this was pretty fun, actually. Can I ask you this? I You correct me if I'm wrong. Mm-hmm. Actually, no, I don't, I don't think I need to know the answer okay so okay. <laughs> star trek lower decks you know what i'm doing i'm speaking aloud just to work it through my head yeah um much like you did not too long ago with uh, the star wars timeline let's see if this is as <laughs> um <laughs> satisfying for the listeners as my uh, little journey but lower decks uh takes place almost like like quite soon after star trek voyagers finale mm-hmm. whereas Prodigy takes place uh, a little bit further along. Like, I think with Lower Decks, we're in the early 2380s, and Prodigy, we're in more the later 2380s. Is that what you've gathered as well? You're on the same page? That sounds about right, yeah. Okay. So I like how Okona has gone from, like, DJ to, like, (laughs) yo, I got some cargo. 
these teenagers, they've got a incredibly advanced Starfleet vessel. I'm going to hop on board and see what the play is from there. <laughs> it felt like a fun way to reintroduce this character. Um, I would be fascinated to know what, you know, children watching Star Trek for the first time in their <laughs> lives are making of the Okona character and if they will be disappointed when they continue with the franchise down the road. <laughs> but, I mean, it felt like a really funny idea and one that, like, I liked that they played it straight. They didn't, like, we've got Okona, let's be really silly with this character. It was like, look, plug him in for two episodes and that's your character. It kind of surprised me as only two episodes. Well, two episodes thus far. He could easily return in the future. Um, can I be honest? Like, jumping over to Masquerade, and please jump back uh, to Crossroads if yeah. there's uh, something you want to add. And but like, I kind of don't blame him. I'm sorry, but like, uh, I've known these teenagers mm-hmm. for a split second. You've got these Tal Shiar black ops. You know, like squad like threatened to kill me i'm making a run for it i do not blame him for what he did right there well like okona the way they introduce him i mean in crossroads which in like what felt like a very maz eisley like um you know location it was kind of that early han solo where it's like this is a guy who'll cut and run he doesn't have any loyalties and i like that they stuck true to that where yeah he just dropped these teenagers like a hot rock and was like peace i'm out it's like I get it, because audiences are like, well, these are our protagonists. How dare you? So, okay, um, I was listening to an interview with Tony Gilroy talking about the writing process for Andor. And, you know, we've been just totally, like, engaged with all the stuff going on with the ISB. Hmm. And you just explained, like, it wasn't that hard. It's like, I just wrote all of those scenes, you know, as if they're from the perspective of, like, the point of view of Miro. Right. Same with Karn. You know, and I just... It kind of felt as if the O'Connor stuff, it, was, it wasn't written from his point of view when he was on screen with them. It was more from kind of the protagonist's point of view and, and uh, you know, like our protostar crew. But it's, it's when he, when Tony Gilroy, who's an incredible writer, mm-hmm. can be so reductive and just explain kind of the basics of writing and you feel like an idiot for not even thinking about it that way. And why, Kent, you and I, we've been like engaged in what's been going on with Miro and company for yeah. you know the last few weeks or the uh, last two and a half months it just seems so simple when you think about it but it's also kind of these like kind of simple things like what if they had written it just from okana's every single scene that he was in make sure that his point of view is being expressed and like he is like kind of a fully realized character it just didn't like how fleshed out did okana like it was, it was fun seeing him but like yeah. did he feel like a three-dimensional character in these two episodes did he feel like a three-dimensional character in his TNG episode? <laughs> no. <laughs> his uh, Lord X episode? Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I think they did take that approach with Crossroads with writing Janeway, where it felt like they were yes. legitimately trying to get inside the mind of Janeway and kind of putting the pieces together. Um, 100%, with, yes. Yeah. But with Akona, <laughs> I, I do think there was a certain amount of we're having fun with this character. Um yeah, like, I, I I was actually a little surprised they cut him what seems like, you know, after two episodes. I guess we are really reviewing the Okona duology this week. Um, but uh, I was surprised that, yeah, like, that he left quickly. And also that he was there mostly to kind of feed the insecurity of Dal 
for the episode Masquerade mm-hmm. and really mark where his journey was going. It, it didn't feel like we were getting Okona stories. It was more like he just kind of popped in for a little bit to have fun and took off. But I appreciated that they didn't make him a joke when he was there. If that TNG episode for season one was not called the outrageous Okona, would this character have lived on in Star Trek fan memory as long as he has? The ponytail was pretty magnificent. <laughs> Maybe. It was the 80s, bro. <laughs> Cam, did I, 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 I don't know. Like, I think maybe I've told you this. I don't know if listeners know this. Um, 1980s Tyler, he had a rat tail. I don't think I did know this. No, it was, uh, and I think what happened, uh, they, my parents cut it off or my mom <laughs> did. And then she clipped it together. with like, uh, like, like a, my sister's, my younger sister's barrette and then put it in, in like an envelope. <laughs> Oh my like, god! I don't know where it is today. <laughs> she but mailed I it to happening. someone. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying, like in the '80s, like these ponytails and rat tails, they were a thing. Like they oh, yeah. were special. Um, here, watching this, what must be <laughs> 68 year old man <laughs> walking around with a rat tail <laughs> uh, or a ponytail with his gray hair. You know how, like, there's sometimes every once in a while you encounter, like, a dude in the street, like, uh, way too old. He's got the ponytail on, but he also has a hat on, and then he sticks the ponytail on through kind of, like, that back loop in the hat. Yeah, yeah. And so it kind of gives it some, like, bounce there. Um, that's as as comfortable as I felt, um, you know, w- watching Okano with, with his ponytail once again. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, do you think he's going to return before the end of this season? Yes, I do. Yeah. I do. Because it's kind of like, does it feel as if like, this is, you bring him back, and as you described it, it's a duology. You bring him back, and this is this is the end of him? This this could potentially be the end of Billy Campbell and all of Star Trek lore? I think they'll give him at least something else. And Cam, if he doesn't come to the rescue in the season three finale of Star Trek Picard... I, I huh. it's going to be like a riot on Ferrex. I, I, I guarantee you that. I would appreciate it if they actually made him an ongoing presence on Prodigy because the thing That'd is, be I, fun. As, yeah, as we were mentioning earlier, like lower decks can do whatever they want with the packlets. So, like, I hope Prodigy finds some elements that they can just do whatever they want and expand on the mythology of. Like, I think it'd be great if when this show was said and done and, you know, finishing that uh, we had an ongoing arc of Okona. Like, I think that would be cool. And, uh, you know, we'll see if they do that with Jellico because we also had Jellico popping up on screen. And, you know, it was just a little bit of a moment. He didn't have that anything that flashy to do. But I did have to admire that the writers thought to pit Janeway against Jellico together because <laughs> I can't think of many characters who would drive Janeway more crazy than Jellico. Uh, Leonardo da Vinci? <laughs> no, she loved him. She thought he was the tops. Who would be uh, other characters that would uh, drive her mad? Would it be, say, Reginald Barkley? Do you recall uh, her actually interact- interacting with Barkley in uh, Voyager? Not really. Did she maybe talk to him in Pathfinder or something? I don't remember. I, I, I don't. It's mostly just Reg with either Troy or with the Doctor, right? Yeah, yeah. Who would, like, drive Janeway mad out of, like, all the characters and, like, <laughs> okay, I know. Goldicott. <laughs> Could you imagine Janeway? Oh, my God. <laughs> we, Cam, like, 
Mark Alimo, Kate Mulgrew, make it happen somehow. I just, I want that scene to unfold. Like, uh, do it on a stage play. I will fly down to Los Angeles and uh, I'll pay the $100 to go watch it in person. Because I feel like Janeway's very patient. Uh, you know, you think, you say like Reg Barkley, but I don't know. I look at that episode, The Good Shepherd, where she's got the real like screw up, you know, uh, young cadets that she's training. And I think she holds it together pretty well. And I also think of her dealing with like Maj Kala, like that would drive a lot of people insane, but she was actually okay. Whereas I think like, yeah, Guldicott, oof, the, yeah, that would push her over the edge big time for sure. Kim, I never even thought about this. Was Maj Kala the poor man's Goldicott? Kind of, yeah. Like, I just wonder if that character, and like, I'm, no disparagement against the actor, uh, I'm, I'm blanking on his name, but could you imagine if Maj Kala was portrayed by Mark Kalimo? I, I, I want to give the actor some credit because Maj Kala is actually fairly memorable to me. Which True, had they yeah. Ca- yeah, yeah. Yeah, had they cast like one of the classic generic '90s men uh, in that <laughs> role, like we'd be like, yeah, I remember the makeup, but he had no personality. Yeah. Whereas I would say the character did have personality. I think this one was more of a case of just the writing than the performance. But yeah, Mark Alimo would have been, I'm sure, pretty compelling in that role as well. Don't you think Mark Alimo would have inspired the Voyager writers to, you know, what? Let's make him part of the crew somehow. <laughs> what what role does he fill on the crew? He would have been uh, Naomi Wildman's babysitter. Instead of <laughs> the Once Upon a Time episode would have been incredible. Yeah, because, uh, you know, like, uh, Mashkala had his own baby to take care of, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So he could take care of Borg babies, you know, each of, you know, you know. there would have been something there. Yeah, maybe they have the Voyager nursery, and there would be acknowledgement of more children on the ship at that point. No, Cam, uh, after seven years <laughs> lost on the other side of the galaxy, only uh, Naomi Wildman and Tom and Bellana's, uh baby were the only ones born on Voyager. Isn't that just stupid? Yeah, I mean, that's the sort of thing where I'm sure that the decision was made because they didn't want to have to deal with children on an ongoing basis on the show but yeah it doesn't make any sense it just seems very unrealistic you know because the it, it, it's everybody in their heads they're like you know we're we're <laughs> maybe we get home to earth in 70 years don't these people want to start establishing families aboard the ship yeah it's a decision i think made more by practicality than realism as to what the characters would actually be going through because i do think that there would have been kids at some point do you think there's like a uh, a dating app aboard Voyager or maybe not? Like, I don't know. It's just because it, remember like uh, uh, Malcolm Reed, like <laughs> in the episode, yeah. like uh, E squared, he was one of the few people that um, he was never able to form a relationship and have descendants aboard, like kind of that generation ship that uh, formed. Yep, that's correct. Yeah. Um, I don't think they would have a dating app i think they'd be more advanced than dating apps they have to uh be dealing with something that's far beyond our imagination i suppose but speed dating uh the the (laughs) doctor the doctor in the mess hall he's got his mobile uh, emitter on and he is facilitating speed dating uh once a week i actually think that would be an amazing idea for just like maybe the opening of an episode or something where you had the single crew members doing speed dating on a ship that could be fun 
Well, Cam, that's going to be our... Uh, the, remember we did those... Uh, <laughs> it was a great episode that we did. God, years ago. It was the Lost Stories of Star Trek The Next Generation. Yep. And uh, we should do that for like Star Trek Voyager or Deep Space Nine or something like that. Like um, Speed yeah. Dating Night would be like a great <laughs> Lost episode of Star Trek Voyager. I would love it. Who do you think hosts it? I think the Doctor is the one hosting it. Yeah. Um, and I think, but what is Neelix's, like, Neelix needs to be there in some capacity, right? But we know that he's not the one trying to, like, hook up with anyone. So, like, what is his role in the speed dating night? Well, Neelix would probably be one of the speed daters. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Uh, is he, though? Well, I mean, he's, if this takes place post, you know, the departure of Kess from the series, then maybe, yeah. This takes place immediately after Kess broke up with him in Warlord when she was possessed by an alien and then didn't want to get back with him when she was depossessed. Uh, (laughs) That was was such a weird moment. Uh, Yeah. Okay. 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 Uh, Cam, we'll we'll, we'll get to our lost episodes of Star Trek Voyager one of these days. Yeah, that could be fun, actually. That that, uh, is also a uh, fan script waiting to be written right now. Cam, I've already written it. Don't worry. Yeah. Um. There's a couple other things from this episode we should maybe mention. One was the um reveal that Dal is an augment. Yes. And the way they dealt with it was just you know kind of this high concept thing of of him having an implant and having different traits spring forward um at inopportune moments. But I thought this was a reveal that was, on one hand, not really surprising, but on the other, I never saw it coming. Well, like, I was curious and like. There's a heartbreaking moment, you know, where he's like, I was born in a Petri dish. Like, I don't have mm. any parents. And again, I didn't see it coming because I kind of assumed that there was some sort of legacy he could attach himself to. And and it's kind of a very sudden realization, both for him and the audience at the same time. Whereas, you know, Gwyn, like, she's got, you know, <laughs> the diviner as her father figure. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah you know it's like i like the fact that they're it's such a cliche it happens again and again in star trek but it's they're creating these family units and it's more about the characters realizing that this is their family unit here and um watching doll go through this weird was it kind of an allusion to puberty or am i just reading too much into it it seemed like it with the facial hair and stuff. Yeah. 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 Uh, there's this great episode. This is back when I was watching like Smallville and uh, like 14 year old, 15 year old Clark Kent. Uh, he didn't have all his powers in, you know, episode one. And so there, there's an episode sometime in the first or second season where like he was starting to like get his like laser vision okay yeah and the way they um shot it or like it it is very clearly meant to be like wet dreams like kind of an allusion to that as it's like it's just like kind of spitting out his eyes uncontrollably and i was like whoa (laughs) that is something Uh, okay i've got a smallville story uh for you if if, if you want to hear it i would like to hear it yeah okay so there were two casts for this show before it went to pilot. Uh, there was the older cast, 
that uh eventually they were the ones that made up the cast you know yet like uh tom welling allison mack um kristen crook you know so on for like those are the older cast members i think they're all above the age 18 that kind of made it easier you know for you know like kind of uh union rules also just kind of you can only if you're hiring a minor you can only have them on you know uh set for so many hours right yeah um and then there was a younger cast that had been cast i know these are very confusing ways of mixing verbs and nouns but anyways uh i was at a party in like it must have been like 2003 2004 not too long after smallville premiered i met the person who is cast as the younger version of whoever Allison Mack's character was, kind of the proto Lois Lane character. Oh. And yeah, it was, uh, anyways, th- th- this actress, uh, what's her name? Uh, she's, I think she's gone into producing like, I don't know, like reality TV shows now. Okay. Yeah. Brittany Irving. That's who it was. Okay. And uh, anyways, um, I don't even know where I'm going with this story. Other than like, <laughs> Cam, we're talking about Star Trek Prodigy. And I met somebody who could have been cast in Smallville, but they were hired like three seasons later when she was 18 plus and could like spend longer hours. And she played an entirely different character. That's the story that I'm ultimately getting out here. Okay, that's interesting though that they would have gone that approach of putting together two entirely different casts, and then calling it later. Um, hmm. Well, uh, I'm sure that uh, the younger cast greatly misses the bank accounts they could have had. No kidding. So yeah. <laughs> those Star Trek fans that tuned in to this episode, I I'm glad I'm doing you uh, a service with all this uh, Smallville history talk here. Yeah, uh, a couple of things to, I think, wrap us up on Prodigy. Yeah, yeah. We had the uh, reveal that the uh, ensign serving on the Dauntless was um, from the future and reactivated Dreadnought. Cam, uh, Dreadnought was a table? <laughs> yeah, classic. <laughs> One of the dumbest things I've ever seen in Star Trek, which is saying quite a lot. Um, I will say this, like the uh, reveal for, is it Lieutenant Essentia? like the the fake trill yeah i'm looking up in my notes lieutenant asenia okay um, was it, it was a lieutenant okay yeah it actually worked for me or that's how okay so that's how she was listed on wikipedia in my head i thought she was an ensign though but um it actually worked for me in that like all the time that we've seen her like been following her it seemed as if her motivations were as a starfleet officer you know and, and those motivations made sense as a starfleet officer like no Admiral Janeway, we cannot fire on the ship. Yeah. There's children aboard. So that's why this reveal works. It seems organic. It makes sense. Uh, I dug it. I was invested in this character, despite the fact that if you add up all of her screen time, it was probably uh, nine minutes. You know, that's how easy you can do these sorts of things, make it feel organic. So I thought that was very interesting as well. Um, Like another thing that I really appreciate about this episode you know like the protostar crew (laughs) they're being like chased by these 
Cal Shiar operatives who choose to wear silver glitter. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'm like, okay, uh, that's interesting Black Ops sort of uniform there. But they escape, and Admiral Janeway finally says, who are these kids? And I'm like, yeah, you know, like, we've kind of seen them as misfits, but maybe there is something more to appreciate about them. You know, like, they are effective at what they're doing, or at least they have the spirit to get them to where they're going, you know? And I'm like, this episode really proved that to me. I, I, I am definitely more of a fan of Masquerade than I was of Crossroads, just personally. Yeah, I like, I thought both of them were solid. I would probably say that I liked maybe Crossroads just a hair more, but not by much. I thought both of them were really enjoyable episodes of television. Um, I had one final note just about the episode Crossroads I thought was kind of weird, though. There's a point um, when they get to the uh, depot where Jankum is walking and he says, like, I'm walking here, which is, you know, obviously a um, Midnight Cowboy reference, but then follows it up, like, I'm going to say 30 seconds later with, hold on to your butts, which is like a Jurassic Park <laughs> quote. And I'm like, are they just, like, inserting random movie quotes into this character's mouth for no reason? I hope that's his entire dialogue. Uh, you know, uh, next week, Cam, is going to be, I'm the king of the world. Yeah, I thought it was so weird to do that, like have two of them in such close succession to one another. It was funny, like in the lunchroom today, uh, one of my coworkers, he, uh, uh, he walked in front of me going from the sink to the, uh, this one table. And uh, I was like, hey, watch where you're going. And then he turned to me, he's like, I'm walking here. Uh, There's very much that Midnight Cowboy reference, which uh, I did appreciate there. Yeah. Okay, so let's maybe move on to the Cam Dorton um, report for the final two episodes of Andor. We combined them because I was in Disneyland uh, this past, the previous week, so we weren't able to do uh, episode 11 of Andor kind of right after it aired. But boy, for a final two episodes of a season, uh, this is kind of how you do it, right? Cam. Yep. Kill me. <laughs> or take me in. Cam, the, the fact is, this show, when you think about everything, just from like the prison escape to the, the final line mm -hmm. in season one of Andor, these are earned emotional moments. These are not Michael Burnham has, has a crying fit because who knows why. It's like this feels organic and it feels earned. And that moment where it's like, like, Luthen, you know, the Stellan Skarsgård character, he looks at Cassian in that moment after he delivers that line, after Cassian delivers that line, and he just smiles at him. And, like, Luthen knows in his soul Cassian is broken down, and he truly believes hmm. this. And the show just feels so real. And it feels as if, like, so much thought is put into what is being built up here and you know again tony gilroy he's saying like i it, it wasn't like i started from a and i worked myself all the way to z you know in, in kind of creating the arc of this series it's like he knew where he wanted to end first and it's more about like how do i create this arc and build this character all to where he's going to ultimately end up and i i'm just saying Cam, that riot, riot sequence, Yep. like, there's something so much more visceral. You know, like, I, I get bored watching all these movies where it's just, like, people shooting each other up. And I, I, look, like, I just, 
there, there's this weird fetish in Hollywood movies about like firearms that I just it kind of irks me but like when you're watching people going at it with fists and rocks and bashing riot shields against shoulders it's it's so much more visceral and it hits you in a way and I think one of the most amazing things though didn't it take like what four to six minutes before any of those stormtroopers started actually taking out their blasters and shooting people yeah you know yeah that's right that moment where Miro was being trampled over and it looked as if the crowd was just going to beat her to death and she was reaching for her blaster and then Karn (laughs) is the one who picks it up (laughs) honestly but for a moment like what I I see like a hand pick it up um I thought she was just going to get shot in the head just very like cynical clinical death just like that. Right. And I, I didn't put the past it I didn't put past the series for just doing something like that. But <laughs> like he ushers her into safety. It's just like these are two freaks that have just kind of like acknowledged their connection with one another. You know, I don't know. It's a, the show is just operating on kind of a level that most shows don't. And and there's really only two other shows that I've I've been watching this year that have been able to get to this this kind of stratospheric level of of these emotional beats that stick with me and it's uh we own the city the uh the david simon um uh six episode limited limited series tackling um police corruption in baltimore and uh the final batch of episodes of better call saul right and having Andor, a show that Cam, you and I were remember when we first started watching this show. Oh yeah, we were so iffy on it. Oh, listen, to, go back and oh. listen to me talking about episode five of the show. Even then, I was like, "What am I watching? For God's sakes, Cam!" I like, I come back now. I'm like, "Oh, this show works for me." I just like, like the the, the prison escape. Like it, it, it's it, it's making me um like a little like butterflies in my stomach just even thinking about recalling that right now you know it's just like the the show's just kind of operating on a level that like I'm bitter that Tony Dil- uh, Tony Gilroy did not decide like you know what Star Trek Discovery I think I'm gonna show run this or you know Star Trek Picard right. I want to show run this it's just kind of like I I feel like Trek fans have been done dirty by not having like this incredible creative presence looking at what could be done within the star trek universe in a way that's never been done before in the way that that he's been able to elevate the star wars universe and cam i'll throw it back to you because as all listeners know i like going on these never-ending soliloquies but um after the first trilogy is there anything in the star wars canon that that is above andor for you at this point um and i'm going hmm. to judge lee harshly judge you harshly if you disagree with me it's so tough because like i kind of measure the tv against the movies differently because the just the tv shows with their kind of, you know, extended storytelling, like, 
they don't have the limits the movies do. So like the movies do feel very different. So like even a show like I, I really, really like the Mandalorian a lot, uh, especially season two, but I also wouldn't put them up against the movie. Cause like, it's just a different type of storytelling. So, and, or the only thing in terms of overall quality that I would look to the movies outside of the originals, I would say like last Jedi, I really loved. And, um, a significant section of Rogue One, not the movie itself, the first hour in particular is very shaky, but like that's kind of the high water marks in terms of the movies beyond the original trilogy. And I would say the other high water mark for TV is Mandalorian season two. Would you? And I'm gonna put you on this hot seat, sir. And yeah, yeah. I'm not gonna be satisfied with any, uh, you know, whiffy waffy answers. Sure. And you gotta just commit. Would you rather rewatch all twelve hours of Andor? Uh-huh. Or would you rather rewatch Last Jedi? Um I may actually go Last Jedi on that okay. one. And what about Rogue I One? I think for me, like the just the emotional punch of Last Jedi hits much harder than than um than anything in Andor. Um although you know what, the prison break stuff with Andy Circus pretty shattering and sorry what was the latter thing you brought up there what would you rather watch more uh and or season one rewatch again uh and or season one or rogue one or rogue one um i would probably rewatch and or season one again uh i just think like there's a lot more to kind of dig into but i think like what rogue one offers is Star Wars action being done about the best it's been done since the original trilogy. So, like, if you're kind of looking for that, that's a good place to go. Okay. I, for me, I, I've, after the original trilogy, I don't even think it's close. Like, not close at all. Uh, mm. It's Andor for me, you know. And... I, I'm debating between like after that whether it's Rogue One or Last Jedi. I, I put Last Jedi over Rogue One. I just, okay, so right before the finale, or I guess you know over the weekend, I, I rewatched Rogue One. Yeah, and ultimately, like my feelings haven't changed that much on the movie. In like I, th- <laughs> I commend this movie. In like uh, that movie was about to be a complete disaster. And Tony Gilray mm-hmm. came in. He directed all these additional scenes, and he saved that movie in the editing bay. But when you rewatch that movie, it is so obvious that this is a movie concocted out of an editing bay, and especially the first hour, big time. Well, a hundred percent. I one hundred percent agree with you. You know, and the thing is, like, it just seems as if the problem with Rogue One. Or, you know, I'll say this. The difference between Rogue One and Andor is that Rogue One just seems like a giant inside joke about, like, hey, look, this is how we uh, were able to figure out how to destroy the Death Star. And then it was, like, scene after scene where it was just kind of, like, fan service, shout out. If I had never seen a Star Wars movie before this, I I, I don't know what to make of this movie. It, 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 just, it was just kind of all over the place with um, Jin Erso as like a pretty solid 
like protagonist in which she's kind of the center mm-hmm. of it. And, and like, I will give it that, you know, um, but the movie was just all over the place at all times. And with Andor, it's like, I, I cannot wait to do like a full rewatch. This is probably going to be a show. Like if it's made it available on like um, physical media with like extras and all that, I will invest in it versus like, right. <laughs> I did not invest in, uh, uh, Picard uh, season one uh, Blu-rays or 4K or whatever <laughs> like that. Yeah. So it, yeah. for me, it's just kind of like it feels as if like Tony Gilroy, he's able to dip his toes in the Star Wars universe with Rogue One. And with Andor, he was able to realize what he really wanted to do. And, and I think the biggest difference here is that Andor has this vermicillitude that you really don't see it any other star wars movie and it's like even like um the penultimate episode we had that sequence in which uh andor and that fellow prisoner they're running to jump on the spaceship and those <laughs> it's pretty fun to see that like those like the uh, gunky spider webs shoot at them have we really seen any aliens with that much screen time other than that you know, like, it was fun to watch, but it's, like, they, they kind of wanted to keep that vermicillitude, like, going with kind of staying away from the aliens. You know, maybe droids are okay. So, I don't know. I, I've just kind of been, after we watched The Eye, the halfway point of the season, I've kind of been all in, and I've been giving so much more trust to the show. I think we both agreed that season, or the episode three, was quite spectacular. But, I don't know. The, the, the show is just kind of operating on a level... Uh, that we really haven't seen in other Star Wars material for a long time, despite the fact, like, I've really enjoyed uh, seasons one and two of Mandalorian, especially season two. But I, I came to appreciate season one much more upon rewatch and understanding ultimately what it was trying to accomplish. Yeah, I, I think to be fair as well, though, we should note that, like, whether it's Mandalorian or a lot of the movies, they're going to be far more enjoyable to an all ages audience than Andor even is trying to be like it's not i'm not saying andor that's a knock against it it definitely has a specific audience in mind and i think like a lot of the younger star wars fans uh, are gonna be left out in the cold with this one i don't care that that, no, that, I know you that, don't that care. is of that, no that, concern the show works on its own terms it, that, that is of no concern to me like guess what uh yeah you want to bring like a three-year-old to uh i don't know uh fight club screening you know two hours and 40 minutes the 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 three-year-old's not digging it the way that they would you know i don't know something like uh the little mermaid yeah that's fine i get it that's of no concern to me i suppose but at the same time we snipe about star trek being a family show when it's doing like gory stuff and characters are dropping f-bombs but is that andor though no, that's not Andor. That's not what Andor is doing. I'm just saying, like, about aging something up when it is traditionally driven towards a certain market. I feel with Andor, though, it's like this is a show that it's not inappropriate for, like, six-year-olds to watch. And I bet there are six-year-olds that actually genuinely like the show. But I, I know what you're saying. Like, general audience six-year-olds probably not going to dig it the same way that they would A New Hope. But again, uh, like... Uh, we're not getting sequences in which um, there's like nude aliens and people crying nonstop like you get in like Star Trek 
Discovery here in Andor. Like, this is a show that, like, children can watch. I just don't know how high inter- interested they are. With Discovery, it's like, um, children cannot watch that show. That, that That's not a family yeah. show, uh, fa- or family-friendly show, I should say. That's true. And I think, uh, honestly, like, Disney Plus would not allow a Star Wars show that was doing the kind of content that Discovery was, uh, <laughs> at least for a while, <laughs> filling its episodes with. Uh, what was going on in Han Solo, or, I'm sorry, Solo, a Star Wars story, in which, wasn't the uh, Phoebe Waller-Bridge droid character wasn't it implied like there's some sort of sexual thing going on between her and like lando that is correct yes yeah so there you go cam yeah and on that note but (laughs) uh but no like overall i thought this andor uh, both these two-parters were just riveting and i what i loved about the whole you know you mentioned the riot was the way they took plenty of time to set it up but also showed all the participants and how they were all filtering in here. So, like, you're sitting there trying to predict what the outcome is going to be from all these various factions working, whether it's the ISB characters, whether it is, you know, um, uh, what's uh, what's his name? The uh, the loser guy. Karn. Serial boy. Karn, thank you. Um, you know, whether it's Karn showing up, the, the young man we see making a bomb. And so you know all these elements are at play when they enter in and so you're just sitting there waiting to see basically on the edge of your seat what is going to happen and i thought it did not disappoint it was dramatically just riveting to watch and even like small moments away from that mon mothma walking down silently with her daughter being introduced to that skeezy baker uh, baker banker dudes um you know are are, are you trying trying to reflect on your own life (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, the skeezy ba- uh, baker yeah yeah uh but yeah the the banker's son there and that scene's silent and it just all plays out on mon mothma's face and oh, if we're talking about mon mothma the scene when she's trying to throw her deadbeat husband under the bus with oh. the fake accusations of gambling debt and he's just yeah. he's none the wiser about what's going on it's just like that was amazing like that's amazing stuff it's organic it's built yeah. in they've been building to it for like 12 episodes like he like it's clearly not true we know that as the audience but like watching this like doofus Who's legit does not know what's going on, and then having like the um spy driver listen in. I don't know, like this is why the show like it, it, it's so good. It is, yeah. The only I guess maybe complaint and thing I'd like to see maybe resolved in the next season is that the show can sometimes feel a little bit like pieces on a board, and some of those pieces just aren't quite popping yet for me as characters. Like you know, we had Bix being rescued in this eh. episode. That's a character I don't have a good sense of there's also the kind of scruffy kind of bearded dude like the bigger burly guy on ferrix who was throughout this season and uh really don't know that much but about I, it. I, I, um, I did the, like i'll the, jump in i did like the fact that he did recount to like casting like this is you know your mother just wants you to know like how much yes like she can't even express how much she loved you like those those are moments at work you know they they work because they're serving their plot function, but they're not characters that are jumping out to me as memorable. Um, and even the the two rebel members, you know, Cinda is the name of one of them, and I can't remember the name of the other. And it's like again, like I like the actors, but I, I'd like to care about those sure. characters as opposed to what they're going to do in an episode. 
Like, and I was thinking, you know, often, we'll, you know, shows like um, Mad Men will get brought up or Sopranos. But I began to think about, like, um, the TV show uh, Boardwalk Empire. Maybe a show that isn't regarded as one of the all-time great shows the way that some of those other ones are that we mentioned so often on the show. And I thought about when I was watching that show, one of the things I loved about it was it could cut to any character who was an ongoing presence on the show. And I was interested to see what was going on with them. And they would, you know, it was kind of an ensemble show where you're bouncing around every episode to different storylines going on. And with Andor, that's the one thing I feel like it has struggled a little bit with, which is that some of these characters we cut to, I'm like, okay, fine, move on. And I think that's something that can be fixed in season two. But when I'm going to praise and talk about how incredible this show was and how these two episodes that, you know, ended the season were must-watch TV, that all stands. But I want to just say there are a couple issues that I would like to see ironed out. It's not full perfection for me yet. And not to, like, like stop on your point. Like, I, I, I know what you're saying, but, like, when you have the uh, <laughs> the personal driver... He ends up at the ISV headquarters, and he and mm. do you know who he's reporting to? It's not Miro. It's Miro's rival, who we haven't seen in a couple episodes, and we had kind of forgotten about. Yeah, you know that's yeah. the kind of fun stuff that I'm just really digging about this show. Mm-hmm. This show seems to want to like have fun within the Star Wars universe, but present the Star Wars universe in a very different way. Uh, Cam, so <laughs> I think immediately after the. Uh, uh, season finale i was on uh youtube and you know this channel uh pitch meeting uh for listeners i don't know go to youtube uh, search pitch meeting it's the one of the funniest sorts of like uh youtube channels you can ever find about all the uh big you know pop culture movies tv shows but how they juxtaposed obi-wan's storytelling with just oh yeah regular storytelling just how they ridiculed it i was just like i was i can't i was literally in tears after after watching the season finale of andor and then watching how uh pitch meeting totally reduced like obi-wan to like this laughing stock i was like oh man this is just so bad because you know like i almost okay I had so such low expectations of Andor going in. I thought Andor would have felt more like something we got from Obi-Wan, you know. Mm-hmm. And I guess, uh, you know, I don't want to, like, grade something on a curve just because it exceeds my expectations. But, like, it, it's always amazing to me when I come across, like, some sort of, like, property that uh, kind of blows me away or I didn't really think something like this was going to happen in, in, in you know, um, TV or movie storytelling. So I, I just want to give props to the show. The one thing uh, the, I, I do want to shout out, though, uh, in that tractor beam sequence uh, in the uh, episode 11. Oh, yeah. In yeah. Luthen. Yeah, genius. Oh, this is this is filmmaking. This is, this is you know, like, the, the tension. Even just seeing, like, these, like, giant space darts destroying, like, the satellite, preventing... Like the tractor beam from sucking Luthen in, like this is a. And then has Luthen ever looked like such a badass when he's getting like these like lasers <laughs> shooting out? He's yep. making sure that you know these uh, Tie Fighters are getting shot up by their own mothership. It's just like Luthen the badass, like holy crap! And then that sequence with him and and, and Saw Gerrera, 
where Luthen's just like, look, I'm just gonna put it all out there. You know, you can you can kill me if you want, but think about it. Like, um, I, I'm giving somebody up. It's gonna be worth it in the long run. You, if you don't believe me, fine, kill me right now. But just think about it, Saw. And also, Cam, is Saw an idiot? Is he simple? Like, I just the way that this character is portrayed, both in uh, Andor as well as Rogue One, he he kind of seems like a like a psychotic moron. And I, I realize he was meant to like he is an extremist, but he seems like simple too. Yeah, um, I have not gotten the greatest sense of him being the most uh, intelligent of characters in the Star Wars universe. It actually makes me want, uh, kind of interested to go back to some of those animated shows and see the way they depict him. Because, yeah, the vibe I get off him in these live-action uh, efforts has been, uh, yeah, he's not exactly one of my favorite characters in all of Star Wars. Well, I mean, you're more into uh, Karn. Yeah, you're, you're you're more of a Karn person. I get it. I get it. I thought you were going to say Dexter Jetster, but yeah, either one. Is that the one that um, he's like the diner cook? That, yeah, uh, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> that uh, Obi-Wan met up with in Attack of the Clones? That is exactly the same, yes. <laughs> How do I know that? Cam, I'm not even the Star Wars fan here, and I remember Dexter Jexter. Is that his name? I think it's Jetster. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and you even know it. So there you go. Yes, that's right. Um, Cam, <laughs> very quickly. Very quickly, and I honestly, uh, we have not discussed this. Uh, you and I, we generally see these big blockbuster movies together every single week. Uh, you were in uh, Disneyland enjoying it the past week, so after sharing our thoughts with uh, our audience about Black Adam, we might as well get into Black Panther or Wakanda Forever. Uh, we saw it separately. I hated this movie. I think it's a legit terrible movie poorly made it's nothing but table setting for whatever comes next it angered me i literally like uh i started laughing at various points during the movie when they're just trying to like i you know move like plot points into the next plot point um there was moments that maybe were okay i mean i liked it when uh, oh spoiler alert everybody um <laughs> black panther's dead <laughs> uh aka chadwick boseman yeah but um when like shuri kind of you know threw his the funeral um uh clothing into the fire at about the um 238 minute point of the movie it actually felt as if they're honoring yeah, yeah this character who this guy popped out of the screen when we first saw him in um captain america civil war I could not believe it. We had heard him coming up. This he absolutely popped, and I just felt as if like his off-screen death because of some unnamed disease. I'm thinking of like Jesus. Like you guys are Marvel. You've got like how many dollars to work with? How many genius people to hire? And this is the best you can come up with. Cam, I hated this movie, and what irks me, or what irks me is how reluctant a lot of people are to say that this movie is not a good movie. It's just not. I um I guess my segue is here that um you know just as Jason Alexander uh was a Star Trek prodigy uh voice actor in Star Trek Voyager, 
you know, uh, he also co-starred in Seinfeld with um, one Julia Louis-Dreyfus, who is probably, for me, like the uh, the best part of this really bad movie. But Cam, uh, you can tell I did not like Wakanda Forever. Uh, what are your thoughts? I'm not going to judge you if you liked it more than me, but I, you know, let's be honest, I will judge you. Um, yeah, no, I didn't particularly care for this one. And, you know, on the record, like, I haven't been a big fan of almost any of the movies in Marvel Phase 4. Um, I really liked Spider-Man No Way Home, and, uh, you know, I, I kind of enjoyed Black Widow a little bit, but it's nowhere near what I would call top-tier Marvel. Uh, this one, it's a head-scratcher, because I think there is obviously a lot of emotion attached to the loss of Chadwick Boseman, and the movie had almost an unwinnable scenario, creating a satisfying sequel to Black Panther without its lead character, and much less the charismatic actor at the core of it. So, like, I have a lot of sympathy for the filmmakers trying to do that, and I would like to have thought that they would make kind of a tribute to what that character meant and, you know, the actor who played him, and that's not really what they did. There's moments, but it felt like they had their script that they'd written that featured, you know, T'Challa in it, and when he passed on, they were like, okay... Um, we will now work in a whole other plot about the heir to the throne. Um, we will also explain what happened to him, and then we will start shifting things around. So, like, okay, the Shuri part of this script, uh, she can't do that now because she's the lead. So let's bring in, you know, Riri Williams or Ironheart. She can fulfill the Suri a Shuri role in this movie. And it just felt like they'd moved things around to the point where like, is this a movie about like grief and loss? Because if that's the case, like Namor as your antagonist doesn't really work too well with that. And that gets to be a very convoluted story about revenge and, you know, these two warring nations, which would have worked out really well if you'd had T'Challa and Namor opposite each other. But here it just turns into a total mess. And as you said, like it's, it's very long. It's a, uh, close to three hours and it feels it and I've seen many a long movies that have very you know strong pacing in fact I was walking out of the movie thinking Marvel was once famous for their very well-paced movies they were very punchy they were very quick they kept you engaged and like I'll, this isn't the first one but when you go through you know uh you know phase four a lot of these movies have felt very draggy and this one the most of all uh maybe to sum it up let's just say i was not surprised when i saw three editors credited on the movie well i will point this out another moment that just made me laugh you know uh climactic action sequence the wakandans they're pinned at the front of this boat this giant boat yeah that's been compromised by the uh the navi i think right and um inside joke uh and you have Ironheart in her suit, a suit capable of like this, these rail gun, like blaster missiles coming out. And there's a moment where you see her, she's just aiming her arms <laughs> at the, uh, I don't know, the uh, Atlantis species or whatever, but she's not actually unloading her missiles or her like bullets or anything like that. She's just like swinging her arms as the other Wakandans are like pointing spears at them. I'm just like, oh, this is a piece of garbage. This is terrible action directing and that it doesn't make sense inside of the universe that you've created. And I'm just like, 
I don't know. I, I just wish more people would admit that this movie was not very good. It just, it was, yeah. it, it was not, it just felt like nothing but like, hey, how do we make this a bridge to the next, to phase five of Marvel? And I agree with you, Cam. Other than uh, the Spider-Man movie, I think phase four has been like a disaster. It's just been like trash. Yeah, I didn't have any patience for a lot of the setup stuff in this movie. I'm like, I don't know if you're making this kind of tribute to Bozeman and his con- contributions to Black Panther. Doesn't it feel more sensitive to not plug this movie full of like s- setup for future movies? Like I, that, you know, you look at the original Black Panther, which was a very acclaimed movie, and you know had you know Oscar nominations and what have you. That movie was pretty standalone. Like it didn't spend the entire runtime just like plugging in characters who serve no purpose. Ah, uh, so yeah, I found this one very frustrating and uh, sadly very true to a lot of what Phase Four has been, including the bad comedy writing, which has been a real issue in Phase Four. This movie wasn't fun. What, was there even any comedy in this? Like, I just felt like this was just like a total slog, like depressing bummer of a movie to get through. Um, the other thing is, I uh, so we're and again we're in spoiler territory, folks. Uh, but so we're introduced to the new T'Challa. At the very end, he's been growing up in Haiti for the last five years. So, Shuri, she's Black Panther. She no longer wants to be. It looks as if Mumbaku is challenging to be the next one. Are, are we going to have like a uh, like a 12-year-old as next Black Panther? Or is there going to be like a giant leap in time in which we get to have kind of like th- some teenage, like, superstar take over this role like it just seems as if like i was just very confused as to where this franchise is going to know go next if there is even a third one i don't think they have a clue yeah i think these were all elements that were put there to be ambiguous where it's like yep that could pay off in the sequel you could easily um have this kid who's introduced that's your black panther in like 10 years because i know like marvel has long-term plans sure um so maybe we have this you know Kugler trilogy or something like that and then that kid becomes black panther in the future who knows like uh, does Kugler come back after this one i don't know i don't know like, this is a talented filmmaker he'd be doing so much more interesting fare at this point like what why would he come back t- like this movie sucked and like, i don't i can't like do you feel as if his heart was in it like given the script that he had to work with, like, he has a writing credit on it as well, but it just feels as if this was, like, a script where Marvel's demanding that they connect all these dots to set everything up going to, say, Phase 5, and it's just like, I don't know. It's just like, this is terrible. I guess we will wait and see. Um, I don't think the future of the Black Panther franchise is very solid at the moment. I don't think they know where to really proceed. Yeah. So... Yeah. Well, very clear, like, going into this movie as well. They just didn't have a clue. Oh, yeah. And and understandably, in the case of this particular movie. Okay, so I think on that note, our assignment is complete. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, we want to hear from you. Jump on over to the Facebook page at facebook.com slash subspacepod. Tyler, what are we doing next week? Well, Cam, we will be ranking the... Kind of those one-off characters that we get from the Star Trek films. Uh, maybe they appeared in one or two, but these are the ones that did not originally appear in any of the Star Trek series. So we'll be kind of ranking like where they are and like kind of having fun with it. Um, 
discussing, you know, look, maybe they appeared in like, you know, two movies or who cares. This is going to be a fun one because it digs into a lot about our investment in these characters in the movie franchise. And I think we agree that uh, Star Trek on TV has been far more successful Star Trek than on film. That does not mean that there's not a lot of cool characters that have been created throughout the franchise. Definitely. I'm looking forward to this. We've done some ranking ones in the past. So maybe check in with those uh, if you haven't listened to them already. Um, and uh, come back for more movie character talk. But of course, you can also find us on the Twitter. I'm at Cam, V as in vocals by Ronnie Cox Smith. And you can find me at Report, and that's R-E-P, P as in ponytail by Billy Campbell, O-R-T-O-N. Okay, so until next time, the arena is closed. complete.